have every right to call the police. You cannot sleep in that room. A controversial 911 call made inside a graduate hall at Yale University is getting national attention. A white student calling campus police after finding a black student sleeping on a couch in a common area. Some students say what's most troubling about this is this was actually the second 911 call this particular person made in reference to a black student in the graduate hall. So this wasn't the first time, actually the second time. But students tonight also saying that the actions of one person can't reflect the entire campus community. Live in New Haven, Amy Hudak, News 8. So that's the story I heard and you heard and other people heard about Sarah Brosh. Yes, that's her name that you hear at the beginning of it. And in, in the news clip, they blur her face out, which people weren't very happy about in the YouTube comments. This ended up going viral. This ended up blowing up everywhere. And anyone from Tariq Nasheed to Sean King was sharing this story about napping while black. That Sarah Brosh here at Yale Law calls the cops on a black man who is sleeping. There's a little more to the story, but all you hear is the original story that black person sleeping outside a dorm, white woman calls the cops. Well, she's got to be racist, right? Of course she is. Why, why wouldn't she be? I mean, look at her. She's a white woman who's afraid of a black man. It, it, it just ended up being a ridiculous, over-the-top story. And she's still dealing with it. It's over three years later. She's still dealing with the ramifications. She can't step foot on Yale's campus over this. This is just a, it's a terrible story. And I had to get her on here on the show, here on the Check Your Brain podcast. I'm Tony Mazur, of course. And uh, I wanted her to tell her side of the story. Because one thing I notice with a lot of these stories is we don't get the follow-up to them. And I mentioned it in the interview, but there are those times where when a story, like whether it's a, and a lot of times it's a hate hoax, when you see a lot of these hoaxes that end up popping up over time, it's the original story gets 250,000 retweets and, you know, all these likes and people sharing it. And then when the follow-up happens, whether some part of the story changed or the complete story changed, there's like 71 retweets, and then the story kind of goes away. And I compared it to the Covington Catholic situation is that the immediate story got immediate pushback. And it was a big blowback for Covington Catholic and Nicholas Sandman. And then all of a sudden, when more information started coming out, then those same people in the same thread that's, uh, that originally reported the story or like, oh, um, yeah, so this is a little different, and this happened, and there's more to it. And it doesn't get the traction. The story kind of goes away. It's not as juicy anymore. Well, this is a juicy story in a lot of different ways where I wanted to get the follow-up. I want to hear about the follow-up because we don't get those follow-ups in a lot of ways. And rather than going away and hiding, especially for somebody who, and she talks about her fragile mental state here in this interview— uh, for, uh, I, I gotta say, she has stuck around and was able to fight through it. She's keeping her name. She's ultimately, I mean, trying to salvage her reputation. And that's what she's on here on this podcast and why I wanted to talk to her so badly. And uh, again, telling her side of the story. So uh, before we get into it, by the way, uh, this is the Check Your Brain free podcast. If you want more podcasts per week from me, you get an opportunity to do so at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R for just five bucks a month. You get upwards of four to five podcasts per week, which means about 20 a month, and you get early access to guests, and I comment and uh, have a lot of good listener interaction. So if you're interested, go for it. If you're just listening to this podcast, it's a free podcast every Wednesday that you get on wherever you get your podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Alexa, all of that. So, in addition to the original story in the immediate aftermath, we talk about the, you know, down the road, what happened to her, her fight against Yale Law, and why she can't step foot on the campus, how she manages her mental health. That was again, like I said, was already in a fragile state prior to May of 2018, and also how is she going to pay her bills? Who's going to want to hire her? After all of this, no matter if the story was true or false, she 
just not able to pay her bills right now. So she has a GoFundMe, and I put that in the show notes page if you are uh, feeling like you feeling genu- generous and you want to help her out in that way. So as Pete Quinones would say, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Sarah Brosh. I appreciate you being on here, and I want you to tell your story. Uh, just basically, what happened? Uh, talk about your background first, then what happened, and then the fallout. Oh, thank you so much. It is my very, very great pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. So, yeah. So I'll I'll try to be um, I'll try to be concise, but get get all of the the biggest bullet points out there. So yeah. So I I have kind of a really, and a lot of people seem to be as kind of interested in this as they are in what happened at Yale. I have kind of like a real crazy backstory, um, you know, real sort of meandering crazy life story. So I um, grew up in what I consider to be a cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses in the upper Midwest, in a really, you know, had a really sort of hellish nightmare of a childhood. And then I sort of knew that uh, higher education was going to be my ticket to a new life. And that's one of the reasons why, and I tell people this, that what happened at Yale was really just so heartbreaking to me because higher education had always been my safe haven. You know, it had always been, it always been, I'd always gone back to higher education whenever I'd experienced any trauma or tragedy. So I, um, real quick, uh, I, I went to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis and I got a couple summa cum laude engineering degrees. I went on to the PhD program in mechanical engineering at Berkeley. I had a nervous breakdown while I was there. I left, I moved down to LA. I was going to become a movie star. That didn't really pan out. (laughs) I sort of like, um, I sort of uh, accidentally fell into the boutique hotel industry and, you know, in, was in LA and in Miami beach. And then had a 30-year-old existential crisis, decided to become an international human rights attorney, went to law school. I went to law school at Fordham Law School, and I had some amazing experiences there, um, including in Morocco and Ethiopia, and um, afterwards at Niputni Soumise, which is a really fierce women's rights organization in Paris, France, comprised primarily of women from the Muslim immigrant communities surrounding the major cities of France. And so I just had all these amazing experiences. And then I decided, well, what I really need to do to do the work that I want to do is I need to go get a PhD in the philosophical foundations of law. So I came back to the U.S. I went and got a terminal MA in philosophy because I didn't have a background in it. And then I did end up at Yale And I could not have been more thrilled when I found out that I was going to be going to uh, Yale. I just, I I thought like I had had so many, I'd had a lot of struggles in life, a lot of tragedies. Um, You know, um, both of my biological brothers are dead, one by suicide. My de facto brother, Sean, is dead by suicide another dear, dear friend with whom I worked actually in the boutique hotel industry also. And so I just had had all of these challenges. And so I just, I felt like I had finally reached like the finish line and I just was so thrilled and I just cried tears of joy. And I thought this is going to be amazing. Everything's going to come up roses from now on. I did it. So it, it really is heartbreaking to me what ended up happening at Yale. So what ended up happening and and there's sort of like a many years context for what happened in spring 2018 at Yale but I'll I'll give you the nutshell version so in my first year in the PhD program at Yale in philosophy I actually um in late January I actually stood up for the federal civil rights specifically the religious expression rights of an evangelical black man. And he was our only person of color job candidate for an assistant professor position. And this just to um, just so people understand. So what happened was, is the other graduate students went trolling online, 
for, you know, dirt on the job candidates. And they found these years old comments that this particular job candidate had made on um, an explicitly Christian forum regarding uh, homosexuality, because he is an evangelical Christian. And so in my mind, he really had hadn't said anything terribly inflammatory. In my mind, he basically just said, look, I adhere to biblical scripture as Christian doctrine, and I understand there to be a prohibition on sodomy, which I understand to include homosexual sex. Yeah, so he, so he basically, he was not not one of those cases where he was uh, saying, you know, slurs and dropping, like, no. you know, he wasn't on forums. He was just, that, that was who he is. It was a different cultural thing. Exactly. That's a, you are exactly right. So the other graduate students, um, the other graduate students interpreted his comments as anti-LGBTQ hate speech. And so they basically decided they were, they were planning to wage a campaign to stop him from being able to secure this position. And of course I'm a, uh, well, not of course to your listeners, but I'll let you know now that, uh, I'm a licensed civil rights attorney. You know, I'm a First Amendment attorney and I'm a deeply, deeply committed civil libertarian. And at the time I was actually, I considered myself to be an anti-theist, like a very strident anti-theist, like, you know, a la Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. So I, I am not someone who was, you know, had sympathies towards this person because because I was religious myself or Christian myself, it was because I'm a deeply committed civil libertarian. And so ultimately I ended up putting my foot down. There were department meetings and, you know, and so, but ultimately I just ended up putting my foot down with the other grad students. And I said, you are arguably a part of the hiring process. You are arguably violating this man's federal civil rights. And I'm simply not going to allow you to do this. And I will do whatever I have to do to stop it. So I ended up being persona non grata. Um, there was like this sort of Spanish Inquisition style meeting between me and the other grad students that I sort of got tricked into attending. And basically, they just yelled, sat around me in a circle and yelled at me and told me how, you know, stupid and evil I was until I was like a puddle of sobbing tears. And I, I know I probably should have just left, but I just kept trying to like convince them, you know, of, of my position. And so anyway, so the point is, is that I became a social pariah, like they, that was the last time most of the graduate students even spoke to me. If I walked into a room, they would get up and leave it. And then I found out that they had, um, because most of the faculty, even though they weren't, they weren't very open about this because they were, I think, I, I think frankly terrified of the others, of the students but they mo almost all of the faculty supported me and would tell me privately that I had done the right thing and that they support me. And so I wasn't, you know, punished or disciplined in any way. And so the other grad students were not happy about that. So they ended up going to the administration to try to get me disciplined in some way and even expelled. And also Yale is this very sort of like, you know, tight-knit insular community and it's also in the middle of New Haven and New Haven is this very economically depressed community um, they do have and now it's just out of control but they have always had you know a problem with crime so New Haven it's it's um, Yale it's kind of crazy like Yale's like this castle with like gates and you know high stone walls in the middle of this community that's a very diverse community, largely minority community, and very economically, you know, struggling community, a community that's really struggling. And it's really just, it's really just, it's really just a, a shame. It's a crying shame. And it shouldn't be the case because Yale is, of course, one of the richest institutions ever. But the reason why I'm telling you that is just to say that Yale, the, the campus is a very insular community. And so, and gossip and whatever spreads like wildfire. So I became persona non grata, not just in the philosophy department, but across Yale's campus. Um, and so uh, I actually, I was really distraught and I ended up 
having to go to basically the faculty ended up kind of insisting that I get, you know, mental health care. So this is why I have a mental health history at Yale. And much of that was made in spring 2018. I was also, I was also experienced a couple instances of harassment in graduate student housing, a point much of which was made in spring 2018 as well. So I basically just, um, I basically just like removed myself from the equation. And I literally in spring 2018, when the living or napping while black hate crime hoax happened, I was living like this hermit Rapunzel, like a recluse at the top of a skinny tower in my dorm. And that was an arrangement that I, I had made with Yale graduate student housing. And I just like, I basically never left my room. I lived at the top of a tower by myself. It was the only dorm room up there. And I rarely, if ever, left my room. And I just was, all I wanted was to be left in peace to work on my dissertation, which I call my, you know, half jokingly call my saving the world project. Mm -hmm. And so that that was the situation and that's that's an important point because so i'll bring us to what happened in spring 2018 so um that's an important point because the narrative that got propagated around the world was that i was trolling the main floor you know common room at two in the morning of my yale dorm looking for random sleeping black people to call 911 on Right. Like that was the that was the narrative that was. Yeah, you were the you were what we now call the Karen. You're just. Yeah. Or what was it? The one in, you know, you're calling the cops on a on a black family having a barbecue. And it was. Right. Yeah. So. So what you're saying right now is it you you, it wasn't just a case of uh, that they're accusing what you're going to tell that there had been a history now between you and a little bit of friction in the past. And then this was their opportunity to really go in like wolves here. That's right. That's right. So now initially, and I do think, I do think so. So the, the actual living or napping while black hate crime hoax didn't take place over a couple early morning hours on May 8th, 2018. It actually took place over months. And the inciting incident happened late February 2018. And now I do think that that was just an unfortunate encounter. Okay, so the first incident was just an unfortunate encounter, but everything, it took a turn and then everything snowballed from there. So what happened in uh, late February 2018, is that um, the the man who was involved, Jean-Louis Renison, he was a stranger to me, and he followed me up to my, you know, up to the 12th floor where my dorm room was the only dorm room um, in an unauthorized manner. He followed me into the elevator. Uh, um, you know, you're supposed to have a key to operate it. And so just to make a long story short, I... I actually did this little son and dance where I just tried to remove myself from the situation and I hoped that it would resolve itself. But eventually, like I did end up speaking to him and um, basically just said to him, like, very obviously, you've gained unauthorized access to this to this floor and I have to ask you to leave, you know, thank you. And so I went into my dorm room and I thought for a second, like I was like, do I need to call the Yale campus police about this? Which, and that's the other thing too, that people should understand is that calling the Yale campus police at that point in time was perceived as being no different than calling Yale campus security. They encouraged everyone to call them anytime for any reason. They would always say like, look, we always just want to come and check out a situation, make sure everything's okay. You know? So, I mean, it was just, it was not, it was not like, it's not like calling 911 of the New Haven police. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it really was not that big of a deal. Yeah. It's, and then, you know, you're going through this whole process where, it, you know, you're, you're dealing with your own mental health issues. You're, you've got all this background and, and talking to people and you're already, like you said, persona non grata. 
And you're just – look, I, I've had jobs where you just put your head down and you just get through it. You get through it. Right. You get through the week. Or you get through the day. You get through the week. You get through the month. You get through the rest of the year until your vacation. And some some jobs, you're friends with your coworkers. You go have drinks afterward and have a good time. But uh, And it's like that in school, I noticed, as well, at, where you just – look, I have a goal right now. Some people, it's stay out of my way. Other people, it's like, look, I just don't – I, you know, if you want to be friends, that's cool, but I have a goal right now, and that's what you were going towards. You're going towards um, towards what, you know, what ultimately you were going for in this history of, and again, it's you're, like you said, you're a civil libertarian. You're not somebody who has been, but you're also somebody who also support a lot of progressive causes. So you're not this far right-wing person who's just looking to uh, start shit with black people. It's you're, you are a, you are somebody who is very sympathetic towards these causes with your history of it. That's exactly right. And the crazy thing is, is that at the time, I was working with the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School, and my advisor was Tom Tyler, the father of procedural justice, who was on Barack Obama's 21st Century Policing Task Force. And I worked on implicit bias. I worked on police brutality. I was working on, you know, a study on school resource officers and their impact, especially on, you know, a minority school children. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just insane. It's really just, it's surreal that this happened to me. I never, I always tell people I never could have imagined in a million years that this could have happened to me. And if this can happen to me, it can happen to absolutely anyone. Absolutely anyone. So then this whole case of napping while black and the, yeah. the screenshot, I remembered seeing it at the time, and I'm actually looking at it right now, and they really tried to, you know, we, we all look terrible at when you see a fir, uh, first picture of, like, when you turn your camera on to uh, re- either record something or you want to see, if like, do I have anything on my face? There's something in the corners of my mouth. And you, you put it on, you go, oof. Like, everybody has that feeling. So when you get a quick snapshot of somebody they're not going to be all gussied up they're not going to be in their be- with the best behavior best presentation so the screenshot made it look like you are really just your you know your mouth is open it looks like you're yelling you're you're harassing these people like how di- yeah. and, and it really and that's how the narrative happens that's why when i mentioned about the covington catholic situation you see a smirking white teenager with a red maga hat on in front of a native american that image is burned into so many people's psyche right now that when even presented the uh, the story was actually false, people still have that image that that kid is still, when you talk about hierarchy and everything, and they're like, yeah, well, he's still probably guilty of something. So when that image of you outside the dorm room, outside that little uh, communal area, and, and it just, everybody immediately went to their, uh, a confirmation bias of it's a white lady harassing a, a, a black person while napping and uh, and, and, and so they, their preconceived notions start to come up and when you talk about stereotypes that that's a definite stereotype to say that uh, you're being somebody who's being offensive and uh, talking about you know hierarchies and everything it's just it was ridiculous when I saw that it was so ridiculous. It was so ridiculous. And if you actually watch the video, I'm completely calm during the, the thing. And I'm, 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 you know, mild mannered. I'm speaking in a soft voice, you know, like, and then they, they grab this one screenshot with my mouth open that makes it looks like, look like I'm screaming and yelling. And also like, I'm, I'm a middle-aged woman, you know, and I'm, I'm, in my forties and that this was at 2 AM and it was in the threshold of my own isolated Yale dorm room where I had an expectation of privacy. And also I had been, I was up at 2 AM and had actually entered the, the room, the only other room on that floor, which it's a misnomer, but it it was technically called a common room, but it was in truth, very little used. 
and never used for studying. And so I was up at 2 a.m. because I was frantically trying to like clean my room, pack everything up. I had already booked and was already moving things into a a self-storage facility because I was trying to get the fuck out of Dodge because I had been harassed for months ever since that incident in February 2018. So what happened there is that I was actually the person who was harassed that night as well. And then these students, Lolata Ciambola, Jean-Louis Renison, and the resident coordinators of the dorm got together. And in order to avoid being punished for harassing me, and I was exonerated by Yale Housing. So what they did is they got together and they decided that they were going to accuse me of a racist hate crime comparable to a lynching. Mm. And if you can believe it or not, that is actually the language that they used back in February 2018. And they went to the Yale administration and they did this to avoid being punished for harassing me and the Yale housing managers told me that they would be punished. And so when they went to the Yale administration, Everyone knew that this was completely asinine, ludicrous, a completely false accusation. But the Yale administration were thrilled. They were thrilled to hear this because they hated me, right? They hated me ever since my first year in the PhD program. They wanted to get rid of me. They saw me as a nuisance and a poor white trash interloper and a thorn in their side. And they were just like, can we get rid of this bitch already? So they they were thrilled when Lolata Ciambola and Jean-Louis Renison came to them with this very obviously false accusation that I perpetrated a hate crime comparable to a lynching. I mean, that's that's obscene. So what ended up happening is that um, the Yale administration, I had to go in for a meeting and the Yale administration told me that they expected me to um, participate in this Maoist struggle session. Basically, I was supposed to participate in a public town hall and profess my racism to the world and help the other members of the Yale community learn how not to be a racist like me. Um, And they also wanted me to undergo implicit bias training. And of course, like I mentioned, I worked on implicit bias. So I, I basically just told them, I said, you know, go jump in a lake, um, stop harassing me. I'll take legal measures against you if I have to. Uh, I could probably, I could probably run your implicit bias training, you know. um, So I basically just I really just went off on them. And so I think at that point, they just decided, like, we're going to destroy this bitch. We're going to get her. Yeah, it went, because, it, it went yeah. from because you actually have that background, like you said, where you know the tactics that they're going to use on you. And mm-hmm. you, you have that feeling of, OK, because it, with knowing about the law and knowing about some of the legalese and also being in that culture of Yale and, and Ivy League schools where it's much different right. than you're at a community college in the Midwest as far as how they operate. So you know those things about implicit bias. You know those things. You know, you've heard the terms microaggression and Right. Which which people most people hadn't heard of until what five years ago I would say virtue signaling and all this other stuff that starts popping up, you know full well what these these are about. So right. so you have that background and because of that, they Yale kind of felt like uh oh we're not we're not dealing with some normie here who doesn't know what she's talking about. We're we're gonna have to bring in the big guns here. Right. And that was something actually you mentioned I was on Tom Woods podcast and I just he's just a king amongst men and I can never repay his kindness. That was so kind of him to do that for me. So one of the things that he asked me about is exactly this. He was like, well, you you refer to yourself as like the last unwoke civil libertarian that was accepted to Yale. And I do. And he said, but weren't you working in, you know, the social justice milieu and Obvious, and obviously, I very, I very much was, but I really saw myself exemplified by what I did in my first year in the PhD program when I stood up for the, you know, religious expression rights of an evangelical black man. I really saw myself as a reformer from within, and and a deeply committed civil libertarian. And so, 
And I always tell people, I think that this was very much one of the reasons why there was such a, you know, uh, just an extraordinary, just overwhelming, you know, response to me. Like they just wanted to kill me. They just wanted me dead because I had infiltrated the inner sanctum. So I had to be, you know, I had to be, you know, uh, you know, ejected from the community as a heretic and an apostate. Yeah, you were one That's, of them. You know, you're, we're not talking right. about some hillbilly from Alabama. We're talking about somebody who's in our, yeah, like you said, you infiltrated their inner sanctum there. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. So what ended up happening um, in a nutshell is just that. So I was being harassed and stalked for months. And at the same time, I was having meetings with the Yale administration and speaking with the Yale campus police and begging them to, to stop it. And they just wouldn't. And at this point, I I feel strongly and I believe I have good reason to think this, that they were actually directing the activities of the students in some respect. And I believe that they were illegally releasing my personal information to the students, including my mental health history. And in the video that was taken of me on May 8th, 2018 by Lalata Siambola, in this video, she makes that very clear. Like she's, she's constantly saying like, I'm crazy. I should be institutionalized. I'm a psycho. And then she keeps saying like the Yale administration knows I'm a psycho. The Yale administration knows I'm crazy and I should be institutionalized, you know? So, um, it was very, very much. And I, I accuse the Yale administration as well, not just the students involved. Uh, this video was very much an attempt to publicly shame me for my mental health disabilities. Very much so. Um, So, but anyway, so what I definitely consider this to have been a hate crime hoax, not just because I was accused of a hate crime in February, 2018, but because um, I definitely consider it a hoax because now um, Knowing everything that I know now in retrospect, it's very clear to me that this that she was actually lying in wait and for me and that this was like a last ditch effort on her part. She had a delusional and obsessive personal vendetta against me that she had developed since the February incident. And so she was just dead set on, you know, wreaking her vengeance against me. Unbelievable. And the Yale, the Yale administration was very happy to help her do that. And so she, this was a last ditch effort on her part to sort of, you know, wreak her vengeance upon me. And so this also, it's very clear to me now, and I do have, I do have some evidence to this effect that all of the, the release of the video that happened like basically instantaneously on multiple platforms, multiple, you know, media outlets online, including the Twitter race hustler, Sean Kane, released it immediately. And per his own tweets, he was he was definitely in contact with um, Lalata Siambol and Jean-Louis Renison before May 8th, 2018. And I think that I also have good reason to think that the ACLU was as well. And that's pertinent because, you know, there were, just like you had said earlier, there were subsequent you know, sort of race or hate crime hoaxes, living while black race or hate crime hoaxes, especially the ones that took place on college campuses. There was Smith College and eating while black. There was the Columbia case where it was the the young black man who was trying to enter Columbia, who was actually the Barnard student. Is that right? That's right. Anyway, so um, the the yeah, so I definitely the ACLU to this day to this day continues to wage an online campaign against me to smear me. It's extraordinary. Yeah, uh, I don't even you know. I was, was going to say that there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of these hoaxes. I mentioned one recently because uh, I was talking to somebody who has a documentary on Covington Catholic because he's actually from Covington and got to know some of the families and seeing how things changed in the media. Now, the good news for them is that, CNN and the Washington Post had to have massive payouts and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, because what they were doing to smear uh, uh, Nick Sandman and his family and some of the students there. So it's that was a story where 
there was a I don't want to say a happy ending because there really is there really was a story that should have been avoided in the first place, but due to confirmation bias that it it just continued. The thing is, yeah. as far as the media goes, that story kind of went away a week later when more information came out. The unfortunate part is that this continues for you. And what yeah. the, when I heard you on Tom Woods and I heard you on In Hot Water uh, not too long ago was because uh, I wanted to know more about you personally because you said that because what really, really bothered me is we live in a society that talks about we care so much about mental health. And, and uh, all we, you know, it's all May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and you wear a T-shirt, and part of the proceeds go to this mental health organization. Okay, that's, that's fine. That's all well and good. But in the last, you know, however long since the, the lockdowns happened and the pandemic, we shut things down for people's mental health. We shut down the gyms for people who were getting, getting their lives together and getting sober and uh, going back into the gym. We shut down the churches. We shut down the NA and AA centers, but you can keep the liquor stores open. You can uh, you can uh, just get Uber Eats, and you can do this. And a lot of people were driven to suicide. A lot of people were driven to overdose, and people who didn't suicide or overdose, but have gone back on drugs and back on alcohol. And so we claim to care so much about mental health in this country, but when something diverts from what the original narrative and what the original goalpost is, is that they now they don't give a shit about anyone's mental health. And you're somebody that you come from a family where, like you said, you had the deaths of your brothers. You are somebody who has your own mental health issues. And I'm very sympathetic towards that because uh, I, I previous my last girlfriend was a she was somebody who had major mental health issues because she also had her brother committed suicide. And I had to deal with it firsthand at home of anxiety and with uh, uh, <clears throat> bipolar disorder and the different drugs and the psychiatric drugs that uh, and psychotropics that you would be on and how the moods can change from, you know, like I can crash her car and everything will be fine. But if I leave a dirty fork in the sink, it starts World War Three. So sometimes you need to have that balance of mental health that ends up happening and you're somebody that you go through that every single day and to have an institution that has gone out and claimed that oh we care so much about mental health yet they're essentially driving you to the point of no you know of absolute despair it's a point of no return and that in my opinion it almost seems like these mobs are not going to stop until you decide to take take matters into your own hands you're exactly right. I'm sorry. I'm, I feel like I'm going to start crying. Forgive me. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And one thing that's so frustrating to me is that when I, I just feel like when I say this, that I'm just being honest and just telling the simple, honest to God truth that literally Yale was trying and is still trying to drive me to suicide. And that these social media moral outrage mobs are were trying and are trying to drive me to suicide. And so what ended up happening with the Yale administration is that before I even knew what had happened on May 8th, 2018, they started, including Yale President Peter Salovey, they started releasing public statements condemning me as guilty of racial harassment. They falsely charged me with racial harassment in June of 2018. My, I had fled Yale's campus while being taunted by a mob. And I went into hiding immediately in my surrogate dad's house in Brooklyn. And I didn't get out of bed for a month. Like I was unconscious for most of that month. And when I was conscious, I would just shake uncontrollably because I was in such a state of shock at what was happening. It was global. It was like a global racial hysteria. I was being vilified on a global scale. And I've only ever been, you know, a human and civil rights attorney and activist. You know, I've never done anything not only racist, but wrong in my or what I consider to be wrong in my entire life. You know, I try so hard to be a good person. I was in such a state of shock. And so then I was suicidal. I was being deluged by death threats and rape threats. People would tell me, you know, the number I always tell people the number one comment I got from, you know, the so-called woke intersectional feminists was that I should go. I'm so ugly that I should go hang myself like my dead brother. 
um, you know, it was, it was insanity. And so then in um, July, 2018, um, my surrogate dad's paid a criminal defense attorney $10,000 to stop Yale from expelling me. And there is not a single, not a single doubt in my mind that Yale wanted me dead. They wanted me to kill myself. And if my surrogate dads hadn't paid that money to a criminal defense attorney to save my life, Yale would have expelled me 100%. And they would have done that knowing, knowing that they were very, very, very likely driving an innocent person to suicide. And that's what they wanted. And in July 2018, um, Yale General Counsel told my then attorney that they knew I was innocent, that they knew I had never engaged in racism implicit or explicit ever in my life. And they told my attorney that they were dropping the racial component of the harassment charge. Then in August 2018, before my hearing, before my hearing, which precluded the possibility of me receiving a fair trial, um, Yale President Peter Salovey released a public statement condemning me as guilty of racial harassment and citing me as the impetus for sweeping university-wide policy changes. And he did this knowing, knowing that I was suicidal, knowing that I was in hiding, you know, knowing that I was being deluged by death threats still. And he was trying, he, I 100%, and I have I feel no compunction about saying this. Yale President Peter Salovey was trying to bring about my death and drive me to suicide by releasing that statement in August 2018. And I just like, I get so much flack. I get so much flack, sometimes even from people who support me for saying things like this. But it's just true. It's just true. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So what ended up happening is in October... 2018, um, the Yale Graduate School withdrew the charges against me. And from insiders at Yale, it was made very clear to me that the reason why they had done this is, well, they didn't want a hearing to take place, of course, because obviously I would have been exonerated. But also, um, they did this so that they could say, try to say that they never in investigated. We never investigated and determined whether or not you know, Sarah was actually perpetrated racial harassment or not. That's what they wanted to be able to say, which is just so completely infuriating and exasperating, right? Because they immediately released public statements condemning me as guilty of racial harassment back in May. And so um, what ended up happening then is that they, um, so they withdrew the charges against me, but Yale grad school dean Lynn Cooley at the same time illegally banned me from campus and banned me from teaching at Yale. I am still to this day, I am banned from setting foot on Yale's campus and I am banned from teaching at Yale. So, and, and that's why I kind of want to go next here is you're somebody that, you, you, well, first of all, how many degrees do you have right now? A lot. <laughs> exactly. So you're somebody who you have spent the last 20 something years in academia. Well, I should, well, if you want to, you know, count high school and, uh, you know, elementary school and middle school before that, you spent your entire life in a classroom in a lot of ways. And yeah. education has meant so much to you. Yeah. And to have this where you, you can't even step foot on the camp, you probably can't even step foot in the, you know, in the state of Connecticut at this point. And it, it's got to be so disheartening for you, for somebody who had that attachment to higher education. Yeah. Now, how do you feel about it overall? Do you think that this is just like, have you been, I guess, uh, as, as the great Michael Malice would say, red-pilled in a lot of ways with right. higher education, where it, do you feel a different way now with education in that, like, okay, if this happens at Yale, this could happen at Stanford, and this could happen at Princeton, this could happen at Harvard, and this could trickle on down to the, you know, the, the Indianas of the world or the Purdue's or the Minnesota and all these other schools. Like, do you, are you soured with higher education at this point now? Yeah. Well, and truth be told, I mean, I'm just, I'm heartbroken. I'm heartbroken because my dream was, that's what I wanted. I, my dream was to, you know, graduate and then become a philosophy of law professor. And I wanted a life in academia. 
um, so yeah, obviously I'm, I'm devastated and I'm just, and I'm heartbroken. And of course I'll never get a job in academia after this. So, but I, you're exactly right because I tell people all the time now, um, especially like just the state of academia and especially the elite institutions like the Ivy League, the state of, of those institutions right now, I just tell people, you know what, if you're going to send your kids to school, do not send them to an Ivy League school and especially not for a humanities degree. Do not go for a humanities degree anywhere. I, I tell everyone now, I say, if you're going to send your kid to college, send them to a big state school for a STEM degree. Yeah. Okay. That, that's the only thing. That's the only thing that makes any sense. It's the I, only thing that. Because I, I just talked to uh, a couple of days ago, I just had J.D. Vance on, who's uh, running for senator in oh, Ohio. Yeah. He's the he's the hillbilly elegy guy. I mean, the whole the movie right. and the book were based on his life. And he was also a Yale law student. And he was somebody who was outside of that bubble to try to fit in and get into that uh, you know, coming from living in small town, Southern Ohio. And he and I should be connected. Absolutely. Oh my <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if you can help make that happen. I can, I, can, I can do what I can for you. I'll, I'll send you a DM <laughs> with some, uh, some info. And, okay. but when you, when you look at this, uh, of somebody where he was, he also went to Ohio state. You notice over time though, that going to Harvard and going to Yale is not so much you're getting your degree and then you're getting a good job and it looks good on a resume. It's also looks good at the cocktail parties and your parents right. and your grandparents and your brother and sister. And say, well, you know, my son is a product of Harvard law. It's like, Oh yeah, my daughter went to Yale law. It's like, Oh, so it's a status symbol as opposed to, Hey, I'm proud of my kid. You should be proud of your kid if they got an associate's degree at a community college. But, that's the that's the new status symbol is hey we got to send our kids to this Ivy League school because when we go to parties everybody's going to talk to us about oh you're that's that's the they're the, you know his kid graduated from Harvard Law and yeah it's it just for me and I say this as somebody who I went to I'm not kidding two semesters of uh, community college and then I got into radio and I've been in here almost 15 years ever since it's not without its hard times it's not without its uh, you know I'm, I'm looking at how I'm going to pay some bills because it's not a lucrative business but it is something where you know we choose our own path I was somebody that when I would I remember being in, in high school I, I say this to this day that I sat there with a guidance counselor so I'm, I'm 33 and I'm of the generation where it doesn't matter what you want to do with your life, you need to send your kids to college. And, and you heard politicians on the, both the left and the right say, we need to make college more affordable, we need this and that. But it's not affordable. It's not at all. It's just to have Pell Grants and loans and everything that you're going to pay off until you're 85. So I was of the generation that I sat there with a guidance counselor in high school that said, well, she said this. She said, I understand that not everybody is made out to be college material. And I said, I think I'm one of those people. I'm somebody, I'm a very pragmatic person. And I feel like I, I would like to join the workforce in some way. And, they, and she said, she stopped me. She said, well, I mean, you have to go to college. Look, just go there. Just get your degree. When you're done with it, then you'll figure it out. And I told her, and it was pretty weird of me to say this as somebody who was 17, where I go, well, wait a second. You're telling me that I need to go into tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So by the time I'm 22, 23, then I'll try to figure out what it is that I want to do. It's like, how about high school starts preparing me for college and college prepares me for life. Instead, college seems to be preparing kids to finish college and they don't know what they want to do after that. And so therefore I knew so many people that went over to grad school. Why are they going to grad school? It's because they didn't know what they wanted to do at 22. So they're going to more college. And so I've always been soured on higher, higher education. I thought a lot of it was a grift and a money, money maker. And then when I hear your story, you say, not only is it a grift and a money maker, <laughs> it's also very partisan and it's uh, it's very insular in a lot of those communities. Yeah, you are 100% correct. You are 100% correct. It's really going to, for for most of the people who go to Yale, it's, it's not about, it's not even about actually acquiring, you know, the knowledge and the skills of, you know, d you know, respective to whichever degree they've chosen. It's about establishing connections. 
It's about establishing those connections that they need to become part of the, you know, power elite of U.S. society. That's what it's about. So you're you're 100 percent correct about that. And also, do you want do you want to know how much I'm in debt? My student loan debt is. Well, you, <laughs> you, you don't you don't have to say the exact figure, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, if you want to, it's just I, I can't even imagine from that and legal fees like, that you're going through right now. Like three hundred thousand dollars. I'm like three hundred thousand dollars in debt. Most of it granted is from law school. I went to Fordham Law School, which is also, a you know, a private, you know, Roman Catholic law school. So most of it is from that, but still, and I, when I entered law school, it was at the time when they were just starting up the public interest loan forgiveness program. And so they were just saying like, oh, don't worry about it, <laughs> you know, take out all the loads, take out all the loads. Cause well, you'll just like, it, but who's, you know, go when, who's going to pay those loans? That's the one thing that's so funny right. about society and giving away free money. And it's like, it's not free. It, somebody's going to have to pay for this at some time. You're right. just not going to pay now. So it's a credit card and then interest starts piling up and I'm sure you're getting killed with interest too. Right. And Oh, it's a, it's a, I mean, I think most people know this by now, like the whole student loan debt, uh, landscape. It is a nuclear bomb that is just about ready to like go off and devastate our economy. You know, it's crazy. Um, and yeah, and so now, but the good news is, but the good news is that Yale devastated my reputation and yeah. livelihood to make sure that I will never be able to pay that back. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and you actually, you know, you actually can you actually can get student loan debt discharged in bankruptcy. It's just really, really, really difficult to do. And unfortunately, I'm in a position where I'm probably, you know, at some point going to be forced to do that because I just I can't get a job at a gas station. I, I can't right now. Um, I was to get my um, to get my teaching fellowship from Yale for the past uh, couple years, because of course I was banned from teaching at Yale. Um, I've been um, I've been working as a volunteer attorney at a local legal aid center, which I absolutely adore, and they adore me. And it's been it's actually been a it's actually been you know the silver lining in this dark cloud. It's been a really wonderful experience for me. So they're actually my teaching my fellowship from Yale is over. They actually rescinded it from me a smidge early because they're evil. And but anyway, so I'm okay. But the reason. The reason why I'm mentioning that is like I'm just barely keeping myself afloat right now because the legal aid center, because like they they love me so much and the work that I've done for them that they're at paying me for a few hours a week. And that's that's all that's keeping me afloat right now. I've been trying for months to get any job and I just can't I can't get a job. Is there, I mean, you are still using your name right now. Is there an opportunity yeah. to change it? And uh, like, I, honestly, I don't, I've never, and I hope to never get into this situation unless my podcast blows up and they go back and find an old thing that I might've said a couple of years ago. And then they, then don't they, tempt fate. Yeah. Them. I mean, who knows? <laughs> I, but it's the business that I chose and, you know, I, you know, you're held responsible in a lot of ways, but you're not, in, you're not in the media. You were never supposed to be in the media business. So right. it, you know, those actions end up happening. Is there a way for any kind of, because that, that's the ultimate problem that I have with the woke mobs nowadays is there is no hope for redemption. There is right. no way for you to get on your feet or unless you're doing what you said, those Maoist struggle sessions where a police officer has to be in the street, uh, you know, laying down like George Floyd did. Otherwise, all cops are bastards. And actually, there was one of those yeah. stories where there was a cop that was was face down for you know nine minutes and 29 seconds like george floyd in front of a, one of the woke mobs and somebody says okay that's fine but that's not enough so what is enough and, and there's never really that hope for redemption for you to come back and you can say look here's my side of the story here's this side of the story and 
you know, even if even if you were wrong, let's say in that situation, that there is no hope. You're unpersoned. They would take people off right. social media for that. You're, you're right. going to get denied jobs, like you said, at a gas station or a convenience store. That shouldn't be. We should be a forgiving society. If we if we were this supposed Judeo-Christian society, there is that hope for a second chance and forgiveness. But instead, it's no, he or she can never work again because he or she went against... Uh, you know, whatever the narrative that we were trying to push. It, it's it's sad. Mm-hmm. Is there if you talk to anybody about what an opportunity where you can overcome and try to get to a point where you can actually live your life, you know, in a somewhat normal life at this point? Or is are you mm-hmm. just accepting that this is what life is from now on? I th- I'm pretty sure that this is what my life is from now on. I am. Yeah. It's and sad. you know what? Yeah. Oh yeah, my gosh. It is. I just, I just, because they're not, they're not going to stop attacking me until I'm dead. They're not. And the the thing about changing my name and then I do understand the pragmatic pragmatics behind that, but I just like, I will never change my name. I will never change my name. And the reason why is because it's my dead brother's name, of course. So I will never, I will never change my name. But here's the other thing too. The other reason why they want me dead so badly is because like, I'm, I'm basically, I'm the proof. I'm the proof. The fact that I'm alive is the proof and I exist is the proof that everything that they have said, their entire, you know, ideology is just complete and utter bigotry and stupidity and bullshit, you know? And so I'm just like, at this point, like, and I get a lot of flack for this too. And people are now, so I, I don't know, I'm struggling with it because I've been really fighting back and I've been fighting back hard and I've been getting a lot of flack for it, especially recently. And, but I just feel like, you know what I didn't, and people tell, tell me I'm waging war on people. And I'm like, no, I'm not waging war on anyone. They waged war on me. I'm trying to save myself. I'm trying to save my life and career. And more than that, I'm trying to stop cancel culture and stop trial by Twitter without due process, which is destroying our society. And I'm trying to expose all of the lying bigots and frauds who participated in the witch hunt at Yale that almost got me killed. And I'm just, I never apologized. I will never apologize because I did nothing wrong if I do something wrong, I am happy to apologize, but I am not going to grovel. I'm not going to grovel to be allowed to live by the monsters who repeatedly tried to mob me to suicide on Twitter, who called for me to be expelled, called for me to be disbarred, called for me to be prosecuted, called for me to be just utterly destroyed and decimated so that I would so that I would kill myself because I had no other recourse. These people this is these are monsters. These are monsters and I I'm sorry, I don't care. People are like, well, I was just, you know, swept up in the hysteria. I was just swept up in the mob. I was just swept up in the moral panic. Well, maybe stop fucking doing that. Mm -hmm. Maybe stop fucking getting swept up in the moral panic. And you know what? This is another reason why fuck the humanities. Because do you know how many academic philosophers were perfectly happy to join the mob and the witch hunt at Yale? So many. Like, definitely a majority most of them i i i don't hesitate to say like so they're not obviously like they're not teaching like the great critical thinking that they think they're teaching right they were just as susceptible they were just as susceptible to join the mob against me as anyone else you know the the all of the philosophy professors um but yeah so um i just feel now like well i feel like i have to just write a book I just have to write a book and I'm working on a book proposal. So I think I just have to write a book and write, like you mentioned, I am my wonderful, wonderful, amazing attorneys at Randazza Legal Group are in court right now pursuing my FOIA, my Freedom of Information and FERPA requests. And so they're, they're fighting right now still in the Connecticut courts to get the Yale police um, body cam footage from the hate crime hoax on May 2018. And so, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm still pursuing legal measures 
I'm doing absolutely everything I can. Basically, I'm just screaming the truth from the rooftops. Like you mentioned, I have my YouTube, I have my blog, I have my Twitter. And I just, I just, it's not, and I always tell people like, yeah, I'm really, I'm, yeah, I'm really, really fucking pissed off. And I don't feel like I need to apologize for that. You know, and I'm, I'm tired of being told how I'm allowed to recover from this hellish nightmare that I barely survived. And yeah, I want apologies. I want apologies from everyone. I want retractions from everyone, from the New York Times, from CNN, from MSNBC, from the Washington Post, from the LA Times. And I'm sure I'll probably never get it. So in lieu of that, you know, I just, I, I do like for me personally, I'm really fucking pissed off and I want revenge and I don't make any apology for that. But it's not, it's obviously not just about, you know, little old me, right? It's obviously not just about little old me. It's like, I want to stop. I want to put the fear of God in them because I don't want them to do this to another, you know, private citizen, nobody with no resources ever again. Like, you know, you thought I couldn't fight back, fuckers. I'm going to fight back. I'm fighting back. Sorry. No, no. It, it, no, I love it. I, I love it because, it, like you said, you're, you're not changing your name. You're keeping your integrity. And, and that's you're free. You're really a freedom fighter. And you're not just doing it for yourself because there are others. This is it, it, this is going to continue happening. And I'm sure, yeah. you know, it, even even to the most liberal progressive at any one of these Ivy League schools that uh, I mean, there was that woman in the park in New York that uh, they had yeah. the, the guy that was filming her and she starts freaking out over it. And she was somebody that, again, she, she probably was double masked and she was, you know, she's not one of those people that you would think are racist. But that's what the mob is doing is it's driving people who are not racist to say, well, no, it's because of your skin color that you because of your implicit bias that you have is that you may not think you are, but you really are. And what that is, is it's driving more people to your side and saying, wow, this really can happen to everybody. So, uh, Sarah, th this has been fantastic. I want to want to help you out uh, financially for. For folks listening right now, uh, talk about the GoFundMe. How can they support you? Uh, get through yeah. your legal fees. Get through just just trying to keep your head above water right now. Oh, thank you so much. That just means the world to me. And my supporters have been so generous and so amazing. And I do need continued support. And like you mentioned, it's also about restoring due process and equal protection at Yale and Smith College and everywhere. So just uh, the easiest thing to do to support me is to just go to my Twitter, I think, because my Twitter has all of my links. It has my links to my GoFundMe, my link to my PayPal me, my link to my YouTube channel. So just go to my Twitter and it's Sarah Brosh one is my Twitter handle. You don't even need to be a Twitter user. You can just Google Sarah Brosh Twitter and my Twitter will come right up and you can just click on it. You can see my links. You can see my Twitter feed. But my Twitter handle is Sarah Brosh one. And I'll spell that for you because I have kind of a crazy last name. So it's Sarah S-A-R-A-H Brosh, which is B-R-A-A-S-C-H one. Yeah, this is just, it's, you know, it's such a sad story. I'm going to put this in the, uh, as we call it, the show notes page and and the link to donate to the GoFundMe. There's a lot of people out there. Uh, that, and I'm sure that Tom Woods really gave you uh, and his audience are very loyal. And and when you talk about freedom fighting, there's no one better in the out there, probably next to Ron Paul, that there is uh, with someone like Tom Woods of being in the libertarian culture. And that's the way, and as soon as I heard you on there, I said, I, I got to get in contact with Sarah. I got to hear her story uh, a, a little bit and do a little bit more long form here with you because this is just it's a it's a sad situation it's a story that everybody should know about uh, and it's and it's uh, by the way also a story that people need to start reading more into instead of looking at the headline they need to dig into mm -hmm. the story a little bit more until it's kind of like with all the COVID stuff that bothered me was uh, 28 year old dies of COVID and then when you start reading about 17 paragraphs in you find out the person was 
you know, 612 pounds and had uh, <laughs> asthma and had this and that. And you're like, so what, but you're framing this story in a distorted way. So the audience looks at the headline and instead of really digging deep into realizing why that 28 year old that was not perfectly healthy that died of COVID. So it's, it, but again, like I talked about with the uh, Covington Catholic situation, what is it going to take for the the audience that's out there that consume the news consumer to go, hey, wait a second, uh, this, something's not adding up here, and it's just it's it's just become a big problem here. I I, I don't know what it's going to take, but hopefully, you know, I, you know, people like you are out there and and staying true to it, not apologizing. No one should apologize for something like that, especially when they didn't do anything wrong, uh, and don't. You know, don't succumb to the mob, and uh, and uh, and I and I pray for your mental health too, because if it's somebody who is, you know, claims to be very strong, you don't know how strong that person really is. You think, right. oh, they're they have a strong uh, exterior, but what's their true interior like look like? And as you know, like I said, as having uh, knowing people who have had mental issues and breakdowns uh, over time, it's got to be so trying. And the fact that. I, you know, I don't mean to sound insensitive, but, you know, the fact that you're still with us throughout this whole thing really is a testament to how strong you really are that you may not have thought. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for saying that. Like, I do feel that like I, I feel shocked. Honestly, I feel shocked that I'm still alive. I just can't even count the number of times that I, you know, almost killed myself. And I, I'm still intermittently suicidal. I'm still getting mobbed and attacked because now, you know, the truth, because the more that I get the truth out, the more that I get attacked, of course, because, yeah. you know, they, they don't, they'll do anything to stop me from saving my life and career and getting the truth out. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I just, I just um, thank you from the bottom of my heart for saying that. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying, I'm doing, I'm doing everything, everything I can you know, just to stay, stay calm, stay strong, stay brave. Um, I, I just, I wouldn't be alive were it not for just the beautiful and amazing supporters, um, especially, you know, on social media, which is kind of, which is ironic, uh, but it's true. I mean, there's, there are good aspects about social media too. And one of the good aspects is that, you know, I have this amazing community of supporters that have really saved my life time and again. And I joke now that I have a an anti-cyberbullying posse that as soon as I get attacked, they just like they just go to town, you know, on the attackers. So, yeah, I well, love them well, Sarah, I'm going to selfishly say this, uh, but uh, stay with us. Uh, here on this planet, because I want to I want to update as months go down from now, and you know I want to talk to you again, and because uh, I don't, really don't, you know, like I want to be able to talk to you months from now, and hopefully that there's some breakthroughs and everything is going going in a more positive direction and get that update because it, uh, yeah, it's it, it's just not good and. You know, what they're doing to people with with mental health issues is just ridiculous in this yeah. in this particular situation and and there's others out there too that are just it's just as egregious well Sarah again thanks so much I look forward to uh, posting this and getting the response I'll send uh, I'll tag you in it on Twitter of course and uh, okay. we'll 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 go from there it's gonna be uh, I, I think you're gonna get a good response here thank you so much thank you thank you and have a, have a nice weekend you too.